This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. back to the readers karamazov we are your hosts the bastard sons of hegel i am carl bookmarks i'm friedrich pizza and i'm sore in rear guard we're glad to have you back as always you can follow us on social media we're on twitter at the readers k we're on facebook facebook.com slash the readers karamazov you can email us questions at the readers karamazov at gmail.com and sign up for our patreon patreon.com slash the readers Karamazov. Um, we're glad you're here listening. We're happy to have you along. And I'm going to throw it over to Friedrich to introduce this book because this was his first pick on the pod and we're very excited about talking about it. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, I picked this book because I actually saw the movie first and then uh, the movie really resounded with me and hits a lot of my interests. It's by Shusako Endo, who is of the quote unquote third generation of writers after World War II in Japan. He was born before World War II and then converted to Catholicism at the age of 11 or 12. And his writing, much of his writing deals with that choice to remain Catholic throughout his life. It's something he describes as a feeling like something Western creeping in on him, on on his Japanese self that doesn't quite fit or that feels even colonial. But in the intro to this book by the translator, it talks about how Endo also thinks of Christianity and Catholicism specifically as a sort of symphony and how Romanism or the Hellenic inheritance of Catholicism is a sort of movement in Catholicism. But then there are other movements and Japanese can be one of those. And so wrestling with his faith as something that feels alien, but that he also wants to be universal carries through his writing and then really emerges in this book, which is about 17th century priests, Portuguese priests, going to serve their mission in Japan after Catholicism has been outlawed by the rulers of what is a feudal samurai culture. Sebastian Rodriguez and his partner, Garpe, head to Macau. First, they meet a drunken man named Kichijiro, who joins them on their journey, and they head to Japan, where they're going to go in secret to find their former teacher, Ferreira. Ferreira supposedly, or as the story goes, uh, apostatized and is now living in Nagasaki as an apostate who writes against Catholicism. And in a very weird rewrite of Heart of Darkness, almost, these two go to their own Heart of Darkness to pursue their own Kurtz, their teacher Ferreira. Endo has interestingly thrust himself into the mindset of a 17th century Portuguese priest, Sebastian Rodriguez, on this Conradian journey to a place of violence that he can't even imagine, even as his own home nation's imperial projects are enacting similar violence elsewhere. Like Heart of Darkness, Silence depicts a journey into an alien land to discover there the truth of yourself or the moral failings of your own civilization. But unlike Heart of Darkness, it's largely a question of faith and personal belief. They get to their first village. There have been these covert Christians practicing all the while, ever since Christianity had been outlawed, but they don't have anyone to minister to them. So they've devised their own hierarchy. Not actually priests. They're, they're missing priests. And they attempt to perform sacraments 
Garpe and uh, Rodriguez are living in this village up on a hill in this hut, and they're visiting people in secret to perform sacraments and to hear confession and whatever. Kichidro, who is likened by Scorsese to Judas and by Rodriguez to Judas, eventually betrays the fathers to the officials, and so they're separated. Rodriguez is arrested. Garpe is eventually drowned at sea, attempting to save some Christians being martyred. And Rodriguez is brought to Nagasaki, where he is imprisoned and awaits a meeting with Ferreira, his apostate master. When they do meet, Ferreira tells him that the very basis of their conversions when Xavier was there were not real because the word for God that they were using, Dainichi, is confused with the word for sun and a god associated with the sun. And he believes that there can never be a real Christianity flourishing in the, quote, swamp of Japan because of these language issues and culture issues in which, for Japanese people, the idea of a god transcending the human is simply not possible. And so because of this pressure from Ferreira, the pressure he feels from himself, this father, Rodriguez, who has been trying to live like Christ, finally apostatizes, steps on the fumia, can you explain what a fumier is? Yeah, the fumier is, throughout the book, a metal plate with an image of Christ on it that Japanese Christians are again and again invited to step on to show that they don't believe or that they're apostatizing. And often throughout the book, the samurai or their soldiers are telling the priests, look, when you do this, you don't actually have to believe that you're renouncing your faith. You just do the formality and show that you're doing this so that we can say that you're not a Christian and show these other Christians that you're not a martyr, you're actually an apostate, and that they should let go of this faith too. And so in order to save the Japanese Christians who are hanging in the pit, which is a super sick form of torture where they hang upside down, bound uh, among excrement with a small slit behind their ear to release the blood to keep them from dying, to save Christians from the pit, Rodriguez steps on the fumier, and renounces God, and is in fact invited to do so by the voice he hears of Christ telling him, trample on me, I did this for you, so that you can do this. I've been trampled on, and I will be trampled on. That's why I died. And then Endo shifts into, he's been presenting letters to us, and also third-person narration to us, and then he shifts to reports of the now apostate Paul, as he's called, Rodriguez living among the Japanese, assuming or supplanting a Japanese person who died and taking his name and living the rest of his life as a secret Christian who is outwardly writing against Christianity, but maintains his faith to the very end inwardly. The main thread of the novel before it gets to these sort of very secondhand distant reports that kind of tell us the fate of Rodriguez is Kichijiro returning to him once more and saying, I want to confess to you, and even though he's apostatized, Rodriguez agrees to do so and feels like he can perform this small act as a priest despite everything that he's done to this point. What did I miss? So I think we have to first explain why apostasy is important Yeah, and what even it was at the time and what its, its importance was at this time, because that's a huge part of the book. And then there are three important apostasies at least there's the one first of ferrara that they hear about and they can't believe that their mentor in the faith apostatized before these two potential martyrs are going to go to japan and then there's garpe who refuses to apostatize and dies and a glorious martyrdom exactly 
and then there's Rodriguez who apostatizes in the same manner as Ferrara as as mm. Ferrara you know encourages him to. And there's also Kichichiro's apostasy as well, repeated apostasy. Yeah, which is in contrast to the villagers in the first village yes. who refuse to apostatize. Yes. So there's three groups there of Jesuits who refuse to apostatize, Jesuits who do, and Japanese who apostatize and repeatedly in Kichijiro's case. But maybe Soren can tell us a little bit about like what the importance of it was at this time. Put very simply, apostasy is the public rejection by somebody who had claimed to be a Christian and had been, in the case of Catholicism, had been part of the Catholic Church, had been baptized and was receiving sacraments, the public rejection of that faith. So it's not just necessarily a loss of inward belief, but it's a public declaration that you have abandoned the faith. And in the case of what's going on in this context in Japan, it's a form of apostasy to trample on the image of God because you are publicly declaring Christ to be worthless to you. It's a public declaration of that. And the image of God has divine role in the mundane in some way. Yes. It's it's not just an image in a Protestant sense or something. It's right. It's in fact an emblem of divinity. So, But it's as serious of a rejection of faith as one could make. It's as though you're literally spitting on God. Yes, absolutely. And that is definitely, that's a thread that runs throughout the book is this choice that's faced and part of the interpretation of the of the novel itself hinges on how you view that act of apostasy it's important to know that like at this time the and this kind of gets into my reading of the book the outward supersedes the inward it's this outward demonstration that proves your inwardness in some way i mean i guess at this time that this is being questioned by this novel maybe yeah, I, I don't. I would push back on that a little bit. I guess I would say that the uh, the inner and the outer have to be working in harmony. But it's not as though you can keep an inner sense and remain in the church when you do this. The outer absolutely the yeah, outer absolutely, rejection yeah. proves to everybody what your inner state is. Yes, and what the what the book is toying with is the fact that we can we can make a gulf between that and then question that setup itself. Maybe. Right, maybe. Well, I guess we'll get into that. But but for the time, for the time, I think that's like how it's set up. An outwardness proves an inwardness. I don't know. That's like my Charles Taylor-y look at things at this time. And then later, I think it changes to maybe today. No outwardness can prove your inwardness with respect to how a lot of people view religious faith. Right. Yeah, speaking of Charles Taylor, I, I do want to return to that distinction. And I think that I have questions for Soren about outwardness and inwardness that we're going to get to as we move through the plot. But I was thinking about secularity that when you asked why apostasy matters in this time. And I just want to think about how for Endo, something he does that's pretty thrilling in this book is he's recreating a state of mind that we maybe don't associate with very strongly today in our secular world when we can go to the supermarket and select our faiths willy-nilly. <laughs> that for Endo's 17th century priests, your nationality and race and your language are strongly associated with your religion and your beliefs. And so to be a Portuguese Catholic who speaks Portuguese, going to Japan to preach to the heathens, it's not like someone today going to Mexico to build a school on their mission trip. It's a reality-altering journey for these priests. The risks of working in Japan are death and worse, and the wages of apostatizing are eternal damnation. It's not just something that you do and and say, well, I'm still secretly Christian, right? 
it's meaningful. Right. And part of what makes that such so high stakes is that it's not just about the death, but it's about the commitment of a whole life. It's just not, this is a great counterexample you use, Friedrich. This isn't driving down on a bus to Mexico for a weekend to build a hut or something, right? Um, because this takes their lives, right? It's These are men who are never going to return home and they know they're never going to return home. And each parting they make with somebody, they know very well this could be the last time that we're together. And so there's a sense of commitment of the whole life to that endeavor in a way that I think is very foreign to us. And yeah, and I think what Friedrich's trying to say too is, as Inoue says with his like parable, he sees it as a conflict of nations. And Rodriguez sees it as a conflict of faiths. But those things are at war. You know, uh, Rodriguez is, is an emblem of Portugal to Inoue, not the Catholic faith. And he sees it as different countries meddling in his country, as opposed to Rodriguez seeing it as the playing out for what is the best, you know, what is the true faith in the one universal case. So that's kind of the, the battle there as well. That's true. Inoue and the interpreter who speaks Portuguese have that parable that Carl's referring to about the concubines and the master and the women are, what is it, Portugal and Spain or Portugal and Italy? In, in, in England and England and the Netherlands. Yeah. yeah, so the two Protestant nations whispering secrets to the master about the Catholic nations and the Catholic nations whispering about the Protestant nations. And to them, it's a game that's political and the faith is sort of secondary. But for Rodriguez and his entire life, it's not about nations. It's about salvation and bringing the truth to someone and a truth that he sees as universal. Carl, I wondered what you thought about this reading through. Because the first time I read it, I don't think I really thought about this strongly. But this time through, I was really noticing the element of class that's at, at play in the book. Because the Christians are generally received only among the peasants in Japan. There's an initial maybe reception among the, 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 the samurai and the warlords, but that very quickly shrivels up. And so what you're left with are peasants. And Rodriguez, at least his interpretation of this is that they are offering a sense of hope and of dignity to the peasants that are, they're not receiving from the government that's overly taxing them and everything. And of course, you know, it might be more complicated than that, but I think that there's at least an element that's played out that Endo sees as well, not just Rodriguez, but Endo sees as that being part of what's at stake here is a sense of in this particular context, obviously this is not true in every context, but in this particular context of Catholicism being a, a liberating force for people who don't have much to hope in. It really gets to that early 20th century confluence of Marxist and Christian ideas that you, where you saw like Marxists totally happy with Catholic social worker movements because it was a very worker-oriented, lower-class-oriented, let's bring dignity to the working people of an area, let's raise them up in their wages and in their esteem socially. You know, it's like Dorothy Day and other people obviously are very influential in that catholic legacy and yeah that's totally grist to my mill on page 38 in my edition i think endo really aligns himself with that style of catholicism when he says but christ did not die for the good and beautiful it is easy enough to die for the good and beautiful the hard thing is to die for the miserable and the corrupt that is the realization that came home to me acutely at that time and when he's talking about the difficulty of faith here it's not it's not that you know 
poor people aren't good and beautiful or something. It's it's that the hard thing to do is to go for people with the lowest social standing, the people who it's very easy to revile for what they did, very easy to quickly judge them and say, you know, I'm not anything like that. That's revolting. That's terrible to me. It's so much harder to go all the way, like across the moral spectrum, find those people and suffer with them. And the book is kind of a journey of who of these Jesuits can make it all the way to that level of suffering and remain remain Catholic. To Carl's point about ministering to the meek who shall inherit the earth, there's still a weird change that Rodriguez has to go through in this book from seeing himself as Christ ministering to the meek and saving the meek to realizing that he is the meek. When he's among the first villagers, he can't help but laugh when he hears them attempt to pronounce the Latin prayers that they've learned. He thinks they're dirty, they smell gross. He has a special distaste for Kichijiron, and maybe that's more warranted because he betrays him several times. But you, you mentioned that part of the journey of the book is these Jesuits going further and further into suffering. And I think that then we need to emphasize that there's an important turn where Rodriguez has to see that his suffering isn't as Christ, but as one of the people Christ died for or was trampled for that he himself is more like Kichijiro. He's someone who betrays. He's someone who sins, and he needs salvation. He's not the one bringing it. He's the one benefiting from it. Can I push back for just a second on that? Part of my reading of this book involves the fact that I don't think Rodriguez really changes all that much. And the reason I say that is this. I think that the book has been often maybe misinterpreted because people seem to buy very readily into Rodriguez's point of view. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think that Endo is, while not rejecting his point of view, he's putting it on display more than he is endorsing it. And so we get to the end of the book and we're, I think many people end up thinking, wow, he really did the right thing. He put like people over principles or something like that, which is like, I think totally the wrong reading of this, which is that from the very beginning, Rodriguez is extremely arrogant in the way that he deals with the Japanese Christians, like Ferreira is. And unlike Garape, Garape is the only person in the book, I think, or the only Jesuit in the book who dares to take the Japanese Christians seriously. And so you get to the end of the book and Rodriguez, I think you're right that there is a turning in his understanding of his relation to Christ, but he still puts himself in the role of the one who has to make this tremendous sacrifice for the sake of others because he doesn't trust the Japanese Christians to be able to suffer in the right way on their own. I like that, but I also think that part of the story is about Rodriguez realizing sort of the loneliness of his faith. Like in a weird way, it's not about the Japanese Christians. It's about Endo as Rodriguez just wrestling alone. It's not about yeah. how he's you know humanized. I mean, he's obviously arrogant. I, I, yeah, I, And I love that you say that because it's sort of, again, that's sort of Conradian that there's this distance that he leaves with the letters and then the further distance with the documentation at the ending where saying that Endo and Rodriguez are alike is, is maybe not fair because he did, he really puts distance between them, the two of them. But I think that by the time he's hearing Christ's voice as he's about to trample on the fumier, he's in a place where it's just him. And the moaning of the Japanese Christians in the pit has gone away. And when he's living his life, we're just in this sort of lonely zone of official documentation. And the narrative drive that's propelled us is gone. And I don't know what to make of that necessarily, but I do think it, it becomes less about one's relation to other Christians than it just about one's one's own 
So. I got to ask you both. I don't know where to come in on this slight difference you're having, but yeah, when he becomes Okada Saneman at the end, so there's this ironic distance, right? Which is like, and I, and I love this. I think this is an easy way to read the ending, but it's still true, which is like, you know, the historical record. Uh, when we talked about this in, you know, when we were reading Brothers Karamazov, right? The historical record will leave out these things that kind of, that novels and the, the distance of novelistic irony can get us about, you know, the granular and all important personal decisions and choices that people have that aren't really digitizable or something. But there, there's also the sense like if it's Endo becoming the narrator and when he gets his Japanese name, there's that double level of like, well, this is Endo talking about what it means to have his own received Catholicism have its own real Japanese name in Japan. You know, that's like, that's him. And I wonder if, especially Sorn thinks that if this is meant to be the Knight of Faith, if therefore he is like a, in some way, the truest kind of Christian or something, because he, his outward acts are indistinguishable from apostasy, but nevertheless, his inward sense of faith has never been taken away in any way. It's been challenged or whatever. I think that that's Scorsese's biggest reinterpretation of the novel. Okay, okay. And I don't hate it. I think it's a great ending to the film. We'll talk about that in our patrons-only bonus pod and about the movie but you think, Silence. But you think but the book is totally different? I don't think it's totally different, but I think it is, it is importantly different in that Scorsese gives us a sort of privileged view yes. of yeah. the inner. And it's yeah. totally ambivalent at the end of the novel, you think? I think it's very ambivalent Good. at yeah, the end yeah. of the okay. novel. That's and what I, I think what we're, I think there's a huge ambivalence in the last thing that we hear Rodriguez say, which is, as Friedrich pointed out, he's given it a sort of last absolution to Kichijiro. And then he says, Even now I am the last priest in this land, but our Lord was not silent. Even if he had been silent, my life until this day would have spoken of him. I think that's a very ambivalent ending. Yeah, there's a really deep, wry, biting irony too at the end, the very last words of the book, which come, you know, this funeral was paid for with his money that was in his pocket when he died. And so it's back to like the money that a Judas figure gets for selling. Like Judas who, who buys the potter's field with the, gold, with the silver and then dies in it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's certainly true. I also think that there's this really wonderful tension there. I can't stop thinking, sorry, Friedrich, since you mentioned this, of this novel as somehow a rewrite of Heart of Darkness, because it occurs to me then that also, like Heart of Darkness, this book at least potentially ends with, it. well, actually, one way or another, it ends with a lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either it ends with a lie that he is telling the extern- externally that's not consonant with what's internal, or it ends with this lie that he is still telling himself that he has not abandoned the faith when in fact he has. In one way or another, it's a lie that's ending the book. That's really interesting. For the listeners who have forgotten the ending of Heart of Darkness, it's after Marlowe has gone and retrieved Kurtz from the Congo, right, the jungle, and Kurtz is muttering about the horror of life, the metaphysical horror. And when Marlowe returns to Europe, he sees Kurtz's betrothed who asks about him. And I can't remember the question she asks specifically. It's about how he died, isn't it? It's about his last words. It's about his last words, which he says then were about you, right? And this is after Marlowe has said throughout the book that he detests a lie and he lies. He he was idealistic and then he comes back and 
he doesn't want to talk about the horror. Could you say more, Soren, about the lie? Sorry. I like the ambi- I, I understand the ambivalence of the ending here that you're drawing us to. He's saying the lie is that he feels the presence of Christ in his life, and his life testifies to it, regardless of the silence. But in fact, you're saying he's kind of talking himself into that, or is it a deep? Is it a different kind of lie? No, no. I think that that's it. I think that I think that's one way you could take the ending, the ambivalence of the ending. The other lie might might be the more we might say the more positive interpretation of the Scorseseian interpretation that he offers in the movie, which is in fact that Rodriguez is offering an external lie to the world, mm. but is in fact concealing a truth inside of himself. I don't know if I buy that, but it's interesting. It's a very anti 2020s silence is violence kind of take on things it's in fact the opposite actually there are many ways you could take this ending and i think that's part of really right what makes it a great novel it isn't really telling us how to feel at the end it's asking us to think about it and that's what that's what i like about it as a the the ambivalence of the ending that that's what i think is a mistake in interpreting this as a sort of valedictory ending for rodriguez is that endo's not satisfied with that idea like, oh, he did the right thing because he saved some people. There is a nobility in that. I don't think we'd want to deny that. But there's also a deep uncertainty about what that action means for him. It actually reminds me a little bit of Endo, apparently. This is sometimes gets compared to um, the British novelist Graham Greene. And Graham Greene liked and this book in particular. And uh, there's a really lovely part of the ending of Greene's book, Brighton Rock. And this gangster, which follows this gangster figure who's a Catholic, but he's a really bad Catholic. He dies and his girl, his woman that he had promised to marry goes to the priest and she says, like, I want to be damned with him because he can't be saved. And the priest says to her, he quotes from Charles Pigui, the French writer. He says, you can't understand the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. And that's how I think about this ending is that I don't think it's ultimately an interesting question or the most interesting question we could ask is like, is Rodriguez like a Christian or is he not a Christian? It's the idea that he's kind of come to the end of his own ability to do things and whatever's happening there is some sort of appalling strangeness of one sort or another. I have a a reading of this that relates to that that maybe we can hop to and then the sword's point is sort of about living in uncertainty. Maybe not living in uncertainty for Rodriguez, but we as readers, how you handle the silence of God is a question that obviously gets asked mm-hmm. throughout this and gives the book its title. And something that Scorsese plays up that we'll talk about, but that that I want to talk about in Endo's prose is the nature imagery supplanting silence that whenever Rodriguez is bothered by the silence of God, it's paired with traditional Japanese in, in, in art and cinema, negative space that's filled with sounds of cicadas or the sounds of cockroach buzzing or the sound of a bird crow in the tree rodriguez is almost sort of like the opposite of saint francis of assisi he's no friendship with birds or animals and he would never write the canticle of the sun he's throwing stones at crows at one point i think but one of the among all this nature imagery that gets i mean it's, it fills the book there's a striking image that ferreira says to rodriguez when he's discussing the sort of the untranslatability of the Christian God uh, into Japanese as a concept, tells Rodriguez the Christianity they believe in is like the skeleton of a butterfly caught in a spider's web. It contains only the external form. The blood and the flesh are gone. And as I was thinking ahead of the podcast about that image and about Rodriguez's arrogance and his sort of sense of himself as the hero of this story. I was also thinking about, and this is going into the Watchers' Karamazov zone here for a second, 
about the way Scorsese shows the pit, which doesn't get shown very often in this book or discussed very often other than as illusion. Endo doesn't show us the pit. We hear the moans from it, but Rodriguez never goes into it, and we don't get Ferreira hanging or anything like that. It's referred to. But when the pit is first described, the people undergoing the torture are bound, almost swaddled, and then hung upside down in excrement. And insects, of course, thrive on excrement, some of them. And the image of the butterfly sort of struck me because it seems like these Japanese Christians are hung upside down in this pit, almost in like a, a chrysalis or a cocoon. And in Rodriguez's mind, when he's preparing for this torture, he's thinking implicitly, I'm about to enter the cocoon and it's going to be a glorious martyrdom. And the butterfly that emerges in heaven and, and his idea of heaven is different from the Japanese Christian's idea, as he tells them, is going to be beautiful. And I think Endo, with this reference to the emptied butterfly in the spider's web, is sort of undercutting that implicit imagery throughout and then inviting us to think about maybe the pit in a different way or to think about chrysalis in a different way. And to relate it back to the discussion about uncertainty that we were just having, I feel like this is a book that brings us into the cocoon and then it just leaves you there. And it's it's saying, you're what is being a moral person or what is being a Christian? What is being a Westerner living in the East or an Easterner who feels like he's been invaded by Western religion? It's all in the cocoon and it's all in constant sort of potential but the realization of it, we're not going to see because we're living in this sort of Pascalian wager world and we just have to wait to die to see what's going to happen. And if Rodriguez is heroic in some way, maybe he learns to live in the cocoon, but maybe he doesn't. Maybe Soren's right that he's kind of lying to himself to be comfortable with it. I mean, in the, in this moment, isn't there a sort of like harrowing of hell reference here where like Farrar's going to come and say, if Christ were here, he would apostatize to save these people. That's a very analogous with Christ will die on the cross and harrow hell and bring the souls out of hell. These are literally people right here in the pit suffering, and it's up to you to get them out. And that adds some oomph. And this is kind of gets back to the ambivalence of, is Rodriguez actually a Christ figure at the end? Because maybe maybe he saves these people from hell right here. Maybe that's his cross, you know? The, the ending part here where he's being tempted to trample on the fumier and um, Ferrara comes to him and he, you know, he says, Christ wants you to do this. It's, it's interesting to me for two reasons. One is that it's a repetition exactly, essentially, of what Rodriguez earlier says to the Japanese Christians, which is trample on it, trample on it, because he doesn't think that they can handle it. And that's then repeated to him from Farrar, but in a more sort of, I would argue, a more sinister way. And what it made me think of to think about biblical references is Jesus's temptation in the desert when Satan comes to him and he's saying, like, I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you food because you really need food. I'll give you dominion over the earth if you'll just bow down before me. And this is in a slightly different register, obviously, but I think that Ferrara is offering him something of that same temptation. Do this to rid yourself of the horrible things that might ensue if you make the difficult choice. Make the easy choice because then you don't have to deal with the responsibility. Like the temptation in the desert, it's a giving up of what's essential to gain a sort of ease or convenience. He's a very like Satan figure, right? Like the switching of what is and isn't the difficult decision in his mind. 
And so he convinces him that, you know, the difficult decision is to not undergo incredible excruciating pain and die (laughs) and just live a normal, happy life. That's the true suffering. And the other suffering, well, that's, you know, a few minutes for the glory of martyrdom, which is all about yourself and selfishness. I agree with you, Soren, that the ending remains deeply ambivalent. I don't know. It's interesting how, and this speaks to how good of a novel it is, difficult it is to really decide one way or the other about Ferrara and about Rodriguez's sort of finale. Importantly, that too, that when Ferrara is telling him to do this, he's not telling him avoid the torture of the pit by doing this. He's telling him avoid the hearing the moans of the people being tortured, who have already apostatized. They've apostatized many times. You know, he tells them they're being tortured purely because they're waiting for Rodriguez to apostatize, and they're going to continue to be tortured until he does so. Um, and so the choice is, it is more difficult than. Are you ready for your martyrdom or not? That's the question he wants. He doesn't get it. And that's that's a great point, too, because I think the book seems to suggest that Rodriguez would always choose death over apostasy if it was that simple. And it's like the ingenuity of Inoue and the Japanese to really understand the importance of martyrdom and to skew it in such a way as to make this moral dilemma. And I, I guess, could we talk about the difference there? Because... Rodriguez and Garpe make two totally different choices in the same moral dilemma. And this is a very like trolley problem kind of thing going on. The Japanese are like the trolley problem inventors of their day in this book. And certainly when I saw the movie, I was just like, okay, if this is the moral dilemma you're in, like, and similarly with the trolley problem, you got to do the most, like the Kantian best answer to me is very much the Garpe one, right? You run after the people who are being killed you sacrifice your life for theirs. You refuse to, like, you refuse the terms of the dilemma. But if you don't, then you're Rodriguez. I just, yeah, I want to see what you guys think on, on that. And that's maybe why why we follow Rodriguez and not Garape, right? Garape, for whatever reason, in, in the book, he's not maybe a super well-developed character, but in the movie, he's done quite well by Adam Driver and really developed. But he wouldn't necessarily face that same dilemma that Rodriguez does for a variety of reasons and so that's why he's there as sort of that foil for for rodriguez to to think about i think there's another layer that makes this more complicated and this is maybe very difficult for us to understand in our modern context but it i think would have real resonance for rodriguez and garape which is that it's not just a question of on the one hand to say well apostatize so that these people don't get tortured and die that's a great choice to make but there's a hidden cost to that choice from Rodriguez's perspective, which is that doing so very well might endanger the souls of these Japanese Christians that he is in some sense in charge of as the only priest in Japan at this point, right? And and certainly the people who he has had personal contact with. His actions there might be penny-wise but pound-foolish in terms of what—and and obviously, like, that's what makes it such an interesting dilemma because the, the cost that's there and obvious is a real and terrible cost. Like, if you can save people's lives, yes, you should probably do it. But then what if there's that other layer of, behind that that is makes the choice that much more terrible? That's part of, I think, why Endo's novel is so successful to us as readers in the 1960s or in 2021, that it returns you to that feeling of, you know, it's, always, it's sort of like... Uh, in a very different way, the witch, the movie The Witch, returns you to you know Puritan America to ask about what it feels like to be alone in the wilderness. Um, 
wondering about your own salvation. Endo thrusts you back into that world and invites you not into Garpe's martyrdom, which would be, I don't know, the equivalent of DC talk book Jesus Freaks, where it's just all about like the heroic martyrdom compendium. But he's inviting us into the moral dilemma of, do you save someone now who's suffering, or do you wrestle with the fact that by doing so, you may be damning their souls, you may be damning your own, that it's about, it's not just a wager of, I, I save them by apostatizing. You may be, as Soren's saying, damning them in a deeper way. I think on the book's own terms, you really have to read it like Frederick is saying, you know, in 2021 or in, you know, 1970. If this was on the terms of 1690 or something, like Garpe's obviously doing it correctly. The Pascal's wager then is sort of, you not only damn yourself to infinite suffering for the mere extension of a mortal life for people, but you potentially lose to those people an infinite paraiso, as they say in the movie, right? Like an infinite paradisical afterlife. So you can't reconcile like the finities with the infinities there. So it's just the moral choice is clear that you need to sacrifice yourself for the the faith and the the faith of these people. That's why Ferrara to me sort of represents this birth of modernity where like the terms of the dilemma shift from eternity to terrestrial life and the moral dilemma is not about salvation and the universal acceptance of the people in the dilemma of the fact of an afterlife that is being taken away by Ferrara and he's saying it's far better to think of simply the terrestrial plane simply suffering on earth not suffering in any sort of afterlife which is reflected in his choice of occupation while he's being forced to write his book of apostasy he's also he's no longer looking to the heavens and wondering at the beauty of god or the creation um he's looking to the heavens and asking about its measurements he's writing a book exactly. on astronomy yeah he's saying this is one place where we can help the japanese not by looking to the metaphysical universe but by just looking at the stars and counting them and I think that's another great thing that that brings us back to like whether the Japanese have the right the right mindset for God or whatever. And yeah, and I think like right, it's like kama or kami in Japanese is like this Shinto understanding of like you know there's a God in everything. There's a God in you. Mm-hmm. There's a God in pantheistic sort of. Yeah, there's a God in a tree. I'm sure like Francis Xavier could explain that difference. <laughs> I mean, that's just my take on things. That part of it always just strikes me as kind of silly like for for multiple reasons one is like do you think the average like medieval peasant has a strong grasp on the finer points of the the theology of the catholic church that they go to you know and go to mass every week or whatever like no they don't and at the same time and then like the sort of the other end of it is like christianity sort of came about in the context of a a roman empire that's not really like japan's religion but is still very different in its metaphysics than the Christianity that emerges. And so it's like, well, they've done it before in other contexts. It's like, you can probably figure out a way to make this work one way or another, even if there's some, you know, if some of the finer points get lost in translation. Yeah, it's a very simple thing to say to anyone that, you know, like transcendence, When I, if I'm talking about a God that is transcendent, I don't mean the sun. Maybe our words <laughs> get us confused. Like maybe our words get us confused or puns get us confused there. But like, a one-minute discussion with someone of average intelligence. I think, in any you know, at any time that this book takes place, you can convey that to them. At least that's yeah. I found that a bit of like a weak 
point in the book too. So, so here's the other thing, and I, I'm taking this back to your point about the birth of modernity, Carl, which I think is a great point, is that that's a very, and, and this kind of goes maybe to Friedrich's question of whether, is this actually maybe like a Protestant novel or is it a, is it actually a Catholic novel? Is that that seems like, and I don't want to, this is painting in a very broad brush, so I want to be careful here, but that seems like a very Protestant idea that what matters is the peasant's grasp with a sort of full understanding of what it means. Like, when I say desu, I, I mean, here's like the 30 theological yeah. points of the, what, I, what I mean by desu. And you really need to grasp those things and accept them in the inner part. And that's what matters. And not the sort of clear, I, I, and I think Rodriguez at first takes this position and maybe loses it, but I think he's actually right when he says this. It's like he sees the, the fire of the peasant's faith in the, even though he worries about maybe they're too attached to the external, he sees them embracing the practices of the faith, even if they don't grasp all of the theological points. And I think that that's one way in which the book is setting up this interesting question. And it's sort of, I don't want to get too weird here, but we talked about Charles Taylor before. In some ways, the book is sort of setting up the question of secular modernity and to what extent it's valid or works. When the Japanese say, it's just a formality, don't worry about it. You can kind of keep your inner faith as long as you conform outwardly. There are hints of that in the way that the secularity plays out. It, you can see it in something in recent examples, like the, the European Union's trying to get rid of kosher and halal slaughtering of animals. The idea being like, yeah, we, we love muslims and jews we want them to come here but we don't want them to actually like practice the things that make their faith their faith right we want a sort of sanitized version that's embraceable as a sort of portable inner identity and not the things that might challenge the supposedly neutral space of the public sphere very birth of capitalism moment too where it's like be as woke as you want as long as you buy pepsi as long as you pay the samurais yeah taxes. exactly right like you can be a christian in your inner heart so long as you sell people out and, you know, use our coins and care about affirming our economic order as above your moral order. And obviously this is a historical point in the novel too, but it is interesting that we we start with the Catholic Portuguese and we end up with the Protestant Dutch who are perfectly willing to come and shut up about Christianity as long as they get to make some money. Yeah, my question about is this a Protestant novel in part hinges on how you interpret the movie too, but we don't have to get to that yet. But it becomes a sort of inwardness. It becomes just about this personal relationship you have with God. And as a priest, that's complicated, I know, for uh, Sebastian. He's not a lay person. But to go back to the translation thing really quick, it's an interesting specious argument to say, well, they couldn't understand, the Japanese couldn't understand our God because they don't have a word for it. And as Carl points out, you just have a conversation with someone for a minute you use a few other words and you get to the new definition of a word. It's pretty easy. But it is a sticking point in, in missionary work through the 18th and 19th century. In 1715 in China, or in, Chi in China, they were trying to translate, Jesuits were trying to translate God using Shangdi in the 18th century, which was an existing word for God in Japan, or in, in China, excuse me. And whoever was Pope in 1715 said, no, you can't use Shangdi because we don't want them to confuse our God with their God. We don't want any syncretism. And so they had to use a different word, which was like Tianju Jiao or something. Tianju, maybe just Tianju. But there was sort of a political decision made not to use that word because of the danger of syncretism. And I think that 
what's going on in Endo's novel is, and in his life maybe, is a sort of acceptance of syncretism as sort of what happens whenever something, not, not like syncretism rigidly defined, but an acceptance that whenever some idea or concept is brought somewhere else and it's put in new soil, it changes and it has to change. Yeah, and the book brings up that that metaphor of the again the tree and again, right? Right. But I would push back against that a little bit. I guess maybe I'd amend it to like not a one minute conversation, but a ten minute conversation, right? Where you're saying, you know, your word for God is kami or kama, or and you have dainichi and or dainichi, and and you have this sense, you know, that like God is in everything. But I'm saying no, God is not in everything. God is a transcendent aspect of reality, out of which we strive to arrive and to and to go through this one vessel which is jesus christ you know that's that's a 10 minute conversation i assume you can make and your point friedrich is totally right you have to get outside of this linguistically built worldview that that comes from you know the japanese language or the chinese language like and that that is difficult and it sometimes comes down to these minute differences and it's the same with the birth of christianity right where it's like homo eusia or homo eusia or whatever like the the one letter in the greek is like cause of heresy or something and all of that is important but i think the book makes this point that i liked even though i do like some kind of syncretist or interfaith sharing or understandings i'm definitely very for those but the book makes a good point against bad forms of interfaith which is ferrara's book which the translator says you know well isn't jesus and the buddha like aren't they the same don't they just want everybody to like be compassionate and happy it's a very you know like i'm not religious i'm spiritual kind of like easy you know bad secularity answer i think we would kind of say and i'm not you know against all forms of like you know like i just said interfaith but at the same time this book is really pushing against like that as the solution to when you take a tree out of its original roots and you put it in a new ground everything is the same and like we all have there's one coke can for the whole (laughs) world and isn't that great and like that's what Inoue is selling him. Yeah, exactly. And that's part of the, the least ambiguous part of this book, which is like Inoue and this this form of blasé secularity that the book is trying to convince these people to enter is you know definitely false, definitely something wrong with that. I want to jump in and, and just say that, yeah, when I mean syncretism in... Yeah, there there are multiple versions of it in this, and part of the implicit one that I'm talking about, I think is that you won't convince your non Portuguese or non Latin speakers. You won't convince them of every finer detail of your doctrine or whatever. Right. But as Soren was saying, you can get them to a point where they're practicing their daily prayer. They're performing, (laughs) not a Catholic. What would you say? Performing sacraments, partaking of sacraments, partaking in sacraments, partaking of sacraments. I mean, yeah, they would, in this context, they would not be, Doing they're not that performing necessarily because right. well they're not performing them but they're not really yeah. receiving them because there's no priests so sure. other than baptism but they're they're certainly participating in the prayers and participating in prayers right, yeah they're it's sort of doing the daily living of a Christian and I think that to return to the natural imagery of the book there's that repeated tree in the swamp image that gets brought up again and again and at one point Rodriguez says when I was younger I had an interest in botany and he sees himself as sort of a potential grafter right that he can bring something and graft it onto the tree here and something new will grow that's beautiful but the way of life that sort of gets not valorized at all but at least is appreciated by endo is that meek village of potato farmers 
who just work at their potatoes every day and all they eat is potatoes all they have is potatoes but you can live on potatoes and you can you can be uh charitable with potatoes you give the priests who come visit you potatoes and you don't have to graft all of the you know, sorts of different peas and invent new strains in order to thrive as a believer you just need to work at your potatoes every day the idea that we need someone else to come in and revitalize the roots and and bring the tree back after this horrific disaster we don't need it there's a thriving christianity here already i'm born in it and a part of it and it's hard and i wrestle with it but it exists and i think that the idea of importing it it no longer seems so necessary to him because there's been this succession going on since the 15th or 16th or 17th century whenever Catholicism first arrived that has survived in certain pockets to today I just want to bring up the face of Christ is in Rodriguez's mind, and I just mm. noticed that it appeared ten different times in this short novel. So I wonder if you guys had anything to say about that. Obviously, it relates to like the face on the fumier, but kind of seeing himself when he pictures Christ in his mind, like he sees the face of Christ, right? And it's that face that kind of comes to him on the fumier and then speaks to him and it's just such a prevalent image throughout the book there's obviously like the levinas the face is the center of ethnicity there's something about having a face and looking at a face or looking to a face that draws us to the ethical capacity of a or the moral capacity of another being and so to have that god as man in christ as that face being the one that potentially betrays him or calls for a kind of betrayal it was just a sentence that stood out to me in a book that seemed very, sometimes to be very straightforwardly written, uh, prosaically. When Ferreira first appears to Sebastian Rodriguez, Rodriguez says somehow his face reflected a terrible sensuality. It just seemed like such a modern sentence to me. I highlighted it. Well, there's also this this sort of running against the face motif, or on top is is the idea of the the mask being put on, right? Which is, he says that the the villagers are inaccessible to him because they have they have masked their emotions. Um, they wear these masks. That's sort of a poignant counterpoint to the idea of the face. Is that that face sh- in sort of natural relations, a face should be that point at which we connect to another human being and are able to think about our ethical duty to them or something however you want to put that right to think about our relation to them but sometimes it's not well and for rodriguez he's unable to read their faces and read their the silence of their faces because they have been masked and unable to openly profess their christianity he misreads their faces as only masks or masks that hide nothing when in fact they hide a sort of fervent faith so that's going to do it uh i think this is a good i think this is a good stopping place that's going to do it for us for this discussion of the book silence if you just can't get enough you're thirsting for more you're saying to yourself i thirst then you can listen to our patrons only episode about martin scorsese's 2016 film adaptation of this book silence uh, it'll be well worth your while, and uh, that will be up for patrons uh, soon, if it's not up already. Until next time, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out. Into the silence. Meow, <laughs> meow,
solutions.